I don't know what it was. The jungle came alive. Go on. It happened very fast. Not easy to describe. But you must have wounded it. Unless my eyes deceive. When the big man was killed, its blood was on the leaves. If it bleeds, we can kill it. She discovered the key. There is proof we can wound it. So repeat after me. If it bleeds, we can kill it. If it bleeds, we can kill it. Yeah, now take a stand. Here now take a stand. We can bring down this bastard. We can bring down this bastard. If we stick to the plan. If it bleeds, we can kill it. Something's out there. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King and the chronological order of publication. Is what I used to say. Uh, lately, I've been reviewing each of Stephen King's endings in order to determine whether or not he um, he deserves the reputation that he has for not being able to satisfactorily conclude uh, a novel. But um, that is only because I had fulfilled the mission statement that I just rattled off to you to examine each of his works in the chronological order of publication, which is why it is such a pleasure to get back to that original mission statement, because as much as I have concluded it, it's never be, it's never going to be fully accomplished because Stephen King is still publishing, he's still putting it out, and we are all very lucky that he has put out a new publication, If It Bleeds. So guys, I'm going to take a pause, well, not really take a pause, I'm actually going to squeeze in an extra episode this week, um to give you my review of If It Bleeds. Uh, but before we begin, I just want to give a shout out to the creators of the musical introduction to this episode, John and Al Kaplan, who create a series of hilarious and incredibly catchy Arnold Schwarzenegger-themed musicals based on the movies of his heyday, including Total Recall, Conan the Barbarian, Terminator 2, Commando, and the one that I just used for the purposes of this podcast, Predator the Musical which includes the refrain that has been stuck in my head since I first heard that King was releasing this particular collection of novellas, If It Bleeds, We Can Kill It. So let's put If It Bleeds into a little bit of context. Um, throughout the years, Stephen King obviously has blessed us with um, many, many novels, um, many collections of short stories, um, but less so collections of novellas. Um, he, he, he first gave us different seasons and set a, a high water mark for what he can do with the novella. Just think about the impact of different seasons and uh, the, the collection and the stories that are within that particular collection and, and how they have lived on past just being the, the, the printed page. They have gone on to become very well-regarded and beloved cinematic uh, adaptations of varying degrees. Uh, of course, we have Apt Pupil, which was adapted by Brian Singer, who at the time was coming off the success of The Usual Suspects. Brian Singer, um, most recently, his career has gone down in flames um, due to a lot of uh, inappropriate conduct and allegations of, of sexual harassment and worse. But, you know, once upon a time in the in the 90s, in the late 90s, he was an up-and-comer 
um, you know, coming off the heels of one of 90s uh, most celebrated films with one of the greatest twist endings in, in all cinema history um, and was also given the, 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 the reins to the, the X-Men franchise and got that up off the ground. And, you know, I, I don't believe that the first movie holds up very well um, or even X2, um, which is blasphemous to say, but had it not been for those movies, we would not have gotten anything close to resembling Avengers Endgame. Um, and I led with apt pupil because I wanted to get apt pupil out of the way because um, different seasons isn't isn't remembered for the adaptation of apt pupil. If anything, different seasons is going to be um, uttered with the same breath. Shawshank Redemption, or as it was published in different seasons, Rita ha- Rita Hayworth in the Shawshank Redemption, which obviously has gone on to live a very solid life on TNT. Um, and no joke, considered to, to be the, the most popular and um, most well-beloved movie of all time, uh, Shawshank Redemption. And before Shawshank Redemption hit and um, stole our hearts and changed people's perspective of what Stephen King could do, um, he gave us The Body, which Rob Reiner adapted into Stand By Me which was uh, an 80s beloved film classic, um, which at the time was the first adaptation to do what Shawshank would ultimately do, but just change people's opinion, the, the everyman's opinions on the quote-unquote um, master of horror. The 90s, in the 90s, he gave us Four Past Midnight, which includes the... Uh, <laughs> The Bat Shittery of the Langoliers, a story so insane it somehow works. Um, he gave us The Sundog, which opens up the doors to his next publication, which would be Needful Things. He gave us in that collection um, Secret Window, Secret Garden, which I will discuss a little bit later in this podcast, and The Library Policeman. Um uh, which is a, a, a novella that is deeply disturbing and troubling. Um, and so I would say that Four Past Midnight, the, 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 the stories, there, there isn't a, as much a consistency um, with the level of quality, the way that different seasons um, had, and dif- different seasons also um, included The Breathing Method, um, which has yet to be adapted. Um, in the 2000s, he gave us Full Dark, No Stars, which I believe is uh, a near thematic masterpiece for King. Longtime listeners will know that I believe that Stephen King happens to be a very optimistic writer, though he is very pragmatic in his writing. He does operate under the belief that when a community rallies together, um, rather than individually, it's only once they have come together that they can um, combat whatever the, the, the conflict is, whatever the, the villain is, whatever the theme is that has taken on some sort of monster's disguise. Um, he has gone on to uh, label this concept Katet. Um, from many, we are one. Um, but Full Dark No Stars is not an optimistic collection. It is a, a very bleak, very cynical uh, collection of, of novellas right there in the title. Full dark, no stars, there's no hope. It, it, it really explores the worst aspects of humanity, beginning with Big Driver. Um, first a rape and then revenge story. We get a marriage story, which is, I, I'm, 
it's a it's a fascinating examination of marriages through the lens of a, a serial killer. Um, it's it's really a, a great story, um, and I, I believe that during his writing of a good marriage, he he winds up um, laying the groundwork for what will be the next phase of his of his career, which is the the the, the detective fiction, um, which will. Um, most famously include Bill Hodges, who will give us Holly Gibney, who I will speak about more later in this episode. The uh, collection also includes the story Fair Extension, which I will discuss later in this podcast, as well as 1922, which I will discuss later in this podcast. But since then, he hasn't given us uh, a collection of novellas. Uh, which is why I'm excited um, that he returns to this. Um, that 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 little that story that is somewhere between a short story and a novel is is a slice that Stephen King tends to uh, tends to excel at. He's given us um, a number of of um, entries that have uh, been included in short story. Um, publications before that have filled out uh, the pages longer than the, the short story um, companions the mist in different seasons I'm sorry in uh, skeleton crew comes to mind um, so this is this is definitely an area where he uh, excels at and I was looking forward to, to to reading this to see if he still had what it takes and I just obviously there is a, a, a joy that comes from reading a Stephen King book and how it's been at, at, at the least at the, at the, 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 the least a, um, a twice a year tradition for, for decades as, as long as I've been a Stephen King reader as long as I've been alive um, there is just something about getting a Stephen King book that I, I, I at, for years um, I took for granted and since this podcast has come out it, it, it reminded me the importance of it and why it's so special. But honestly, guys, to, to continue this tradition during the pandemic, um, for a moment, it just made everything feel normal again. To get it in, in the mail, you know, usually I like to go to Barnes and Noble and, and pick up the book, but to get it in the mail, um, I just, I was waiting for it and waiting for it. And I'm kind of glad that I had to wait for it because it, like many people who ordered If It Bleeds, there was, um, I don't know, a, a backlog uh, or, or just a delay in, 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 in getting it shipped out or shipped, um, or, or there was some issue. I don't know, but I know that there, there, were a lot of, there was a lot of chatter online about people um, getting their book a couple weeks late, and that's what happened to me. But in this day and age in which you get everything when you want it, um, there's something to be said about waiting again. And I, I really enjoyed waiting for it. I really enjoyed waking up every morning and checking my Amazon orders status to see where it was and if it had shipped yet and once it was shipped, where it was. And um, I just, I got excited again. I, I, I think there's something to be said about waiting. And so finally when it arrived to open it up and hold it in my hands and, you know, there's just, it's a singular type of excitement the new Stephen King book. Um, and I, I just really take pleasure from, from being able to share that still to this day. And then now with the purposes of this podcast to share it all with you guys. So I'm really excited um, about to talk about If It Bleeds 
you know, I've been talking about it for 10 minutes yet uh, so far, and, and I haven't really gotten into it yet. So uh, there, there's going to be a lot of good stuff to parse out. It'll be one of my longer episodes. So I'm sorry for those that, that don't like the longer episodes, and you're welcome for those of you who do. Uh, so before I get any further, there are two things that I want to do. I want to read just a couple iTunes reviews and some emails. So with the iTunes reviews, um, if you do have any time on your hands, you have no idea how much it helps me by leaving an iTunes review um, because it keeps me up in the, 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 the top, around the top of the search for um on iTunes when people type in Stephen King and uh, it keeps, you know, the podcast going, you know, cause if no one's listening, then um, I don't know if I would, if I would continue to do it. So this, this helps keep the podcast going. So uh, listener JR138 WER138 writes great five stars. One of the things I love that you do with each episode is when you share your experience of reading the novels. This gets me to think the same and unlock memories, putting the cultural impact of King's works in perspective with the events of my own life. This is similar to what the public knows of King's own personality, what his fans have learned of the man by reading his works. I'm now only 20 casts in, but now instead of jumping ahead, I'm listening chronologically. So thank you, JR138WER138. I really appreciate it. And then Max Foster writes, for fans, by a fan, five stars. Great podcast. You can tell the host has a great appreciation for the works of King, and his reviews reflect a great deal of time and effort spent considering the text and the author's intent. Highly recommended for the serious King fans out there. Thank you, Max Foster. Um, I, I, I do try. Um, okay, up next, I have a couple... Uh, listener emails just two two short little emails uh, the first one does include spoilers for if it bleeds I just want to throw that out there and this is from Kevin who writes uh, hey there CR I finished if it bleeds a couple of days ago and wanted to drop you a quick note with my quick thoughts I have to be honest I was not a fan of the Institute or Sleeping Beauties I enjoyed Revival the Outsider and thought Elevation was okay but not great so King's batting average for me in recent years was about 500 or so great for a ball player but not for a writer in my opinion so I came to If It Bleeds with very cautious optimism I'm happy to say I loved it although I definitely see some major flaws I don't think any one of the four stories was particularly original or brilliant what I loved about these tales, and what I felt had been missing in the Institute especially, was that there were characters that I cared about. Every story had a strong character, and even if the story was not relevatory, the writing was much better and clearer than I feel that's been in a few years. I'm sure you'll go into each of the four novellas deeply, and I will defer to you to do the analysis, but I was just glad that the Stephen King who wrote If It Bleeds felt like the same guy who wrote Different Seasons, It and My Pretty Pony which are my all-time favorite for novella collections, novel and short story. I still and always appreciate the podcast. Keep it going. Long days and pleasant nights, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin, for writing in. And yes, I will get into uh, each of the four novellas. And then Richard writes, Hello, just a quick email to say how much I'm enjoying your Stephen King cast. I'm your Stephen King podcast. Only found them recently, and I'm working through the back catalog. As you probably see from my signature, I also run a King cast. Would you consider giving us a mention on your podcast? And naturally, we would return the compliment. One of the things I love about King in the podcasting world is the sense of community, of finding like-minded people. So it would be great to enhance that with my listenership. Long days and pleasant nights, Richard. 
Um, so yes, Richard, I'm going to do that. Um, there are there are two two areas that I'm going to point listeners to if you want more things, um, all things King, or um, or else we have. Uh, this right here. Please check out the Hollowed Histories podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you can get podcasts. Each month we each month we look at one slice of East Anglian, Anglian history, folklore, and general weirdness. Don't forget to write a review and check out our forthcoming film screenings at hollowedhistories.org. And we also produce and host the UK's largest Stephen King podcast, The Constant Reader Podcast. Every month we look at a different novel or adaptations from the King canon. Find it wherever you find podcasts and get in touch with us at the constant reader podcast at gmail.com. So from one Stephen King podcast host to another, good luck, congratulations, and thank you for doing um, good work out there. Okay, guys, so here we go. Um, I'm going to start to get into If It Bleeds, and the first novella that we have is Mr. Harrigan's Phone. So from Wikipedia, and the Wikipedia summaries are so short on, on these four, so that's going to... Um, not eat up that much time. A teenager finds that a dead friend's cell phone that was buried with the body still communicates from beyond the grave. Craig gets a job working for the retired Mr. Harrigan when he's just nine years old, watering plants and reading to the old man, who was retired in the small town of Harlow, Maine, after a successful business, business career. As the years go on, Craig buys an iPhone from him as a thank you gift after a scratch-off lotto ticket that Harrigan had gifted the boy's parents. Uh, I'm sorry, had gifted the boys pays off. The old man is reluctant to accept the phone at first, but comes to enjoy it. When Mr. Harrigan dies, Craig places the phone in his pocket to be buried with him. One night, missing his friend, he leaves a voice message. To his shock, he gets a text in return. Craig will learn that not everything dead is gone. All right, I'm going to just begin um, by reading... Um, page part of page eight um it's it's very early obviously it's eight pages into the story but it's it's early in uh where we're first learning about craig um and this is what this is what he writes she was a good mom i still missed her bad in 2004 when i started working for mr harrigan although she had been dead three years then now 16 years later i still miss her although her face has faded in my memory and photos only refresh it a little What that song says about motherless children is true. They have a hard time. I loved my dad, and we always got along fine, but that song's right on another point, too. There's so many things your daddy daddy can't understand. Like making a daisy chain and putting it on your head in the big field behind our house and saying today you're not just any little boy, you're King Craig. Like being pleased but not making it out to be a big deal, bragging it all when you start reading Superman and Spider-Man comic books at the age of three. Like getting in bed with you if you wake up in the middle of the night from a bad dream where Dr. Octopus is chasing you. Like hugging you and telling you it's okay when some bigger boy, Kenny Yanko for instance, beats the living shit out of you. I could have used one of those hugs on that day. A mother hug on that day might have changed a lot. It's just a beautiful passage. Um, and though not about mothers necessarily, it's it's meaningful when you consider the introduction to Joe Hill's um Full Throttle Collection, which came out this past uh, October, December, um, well, this past year. You know, with with that, the, the, the introduction is all about really the comic books and the relationship to comic books and the reading experience with his father and then the other parental writer figures that he's had. But to hear Stephen King specifically write about, um, you know, Spider-Man and Superman and Dr. Octopus so quickly after his own son 
had written a, a very lengthy sequence about the relationship of parents to these characters really, um, really stood out to me. One of the things that, that King um, does well and, and does early on is, is really focus on the shared love of reading. Um, between Harrigan and and Craig, and that the relationship springs out of this shared reading experience that these two characters have with another. Had it not been for the reading experience, this particular novella and the events therein would not exist. It was because of this shared reading experience that creates the bond between these two characters. And what's interesting here is that the the strength of King is our relationship to King. You know, we are constant readers. Um, you know, I just uh, you know read off a, a, a listener email from Richard, whose um, podcast is the Constant Reader Podcast. We are Stephen King's constant readers, and he knows that about us, and he he's very appreciative of that to us. And um, early on in his career, he, you know, I mean, he he. You know, he, he tried on different personas with, as I've said in, in my Night Shift short story review, you, you can tell he's trying to, to create a, a, an, an EC Comics, Tales from the Crypt, Crypt Keeper styled persona, and it doesn't quite fit. It's interesting and it's fun, but it, it's not him. It's not his voice. His, his strength was that he's able to capture everyday life and filter it through a lens of, of the sublime and the unnatural. Um, and from there, he just was authentic. That's his strength, authenticity. And he's authentically himself to us through his, his reading. So in a way, uh, the constant reader in this case is Craig, Harrigan, uh, Craig to Harrigan as Stephen King. And the description of Harrigan's house, by the way, to me, just sounded familiar to anyone that has heard Stu from uh, Stephen King Tours describe Stephen King's house. We get to know Craig and his father and Harrigan very quickly. As always, King expertly and lovingly creates a believable world that feels real to us. It feels familiar. A young boy out of a Stephen King novel. A part-time job by reading to a wealthy retired businessman. The relationship isn't anything new. An earnest child and a blunt elder is a wonderful combination. And King knows how to mine this relationship. You know, you start to wonder where the, the horror is going to come in and, and, and the plot leading up to him uh, giving him the phone. You know, what what's going to happen? You know, I mean, you, your mind might start to, to wander towards um, another story of uh, a youth and an elderly male um, that was once published in Stephen King's first novella collection, Apt Pupil. And the horror sprung out of that. Um, and it wasn't as idealistic or, or hopeful or, or kind as this. So it's very natural to start to wonder, when is this going to turn into, quote-unquote, a Stephen King story? By placing the focus of the story in the not-too-distant past, King is able to do what Sorkin did with the newsroom, except less preachy. He takes the knowledge of the present and comments on the danger through the characters in the past who are cognizant enough to see the dangers in the fallout from the internet. And King manages to convey it through such a tangible image on page um, 29. On my walk back down the hill, kicking up clods of that year's last snow, I thought about what he'd said, that with the internet, the internet was like a broken water main spewing information instead of water. 
It was true of my dad's laptop as well, and the computers at the school and ones all over the country, the world, really. Although the iPhone was still so new to him, he could barely figure out how to turn it on. Mr. Harrigan already understood the need to fix the broken pipe business, if he knew, as he knew it anyway, was going to continue as it always had. I'm not sure, but I think he foresaw paywalls a year or two before the term was even coined. Certainly, I didn't know it then, no more than I knew how to get around restricted operations, which had become known as jailbreaking. Paywalls came, but by then people had gotten used to getting stuff for free, and they resented being asked to cough up. People faced with a New York Times paywall went to a site like CNN or Huffington Post instead, usually in a huff, even though the reporting wasn't as good. You know, so it's that broken uh, water pipe. Uh, you know, he takes the, the abstract concept of uh, a change in society and he's able to just render it so perfectly through something that we can visualize. King uses the rise of tech to mark the passage of time. Apple, spam, Amazon, etc. He's doing it through the conversational tone of two characters to keep it firmly in a character standpoint. So it never dips into heavy-handed territory. I stopped reading at times to wonder if the conceit of the story was unimaginative. An old man standing in for the old ways and the young boy representing the future. But because King keeps the characters front and center, they never become caricatures. And it rises above the limitations of the concept because King, again, knows how to be authentic to the particular moments that our characters find themselves in. So when Craig finds the body of Mr. Harrigan, you come to like the old coot. King, however, does not sensationalize the moment. It's rendered through the eyes of Craig, who for a moment treats the situation as someone who exists in a world where Stephen King is a thing, where he fully expects Harrigan to rise from the dead and to come for him. But that's not the King story that King is writing. Instead, he walks us through the grieving process, which he has aptly nailed time and time again, most notably in the book's Pet Cemetery and Revival for its most gut-wrenching but also in quieter scope with Insomnia, Hearts in Atlantis, Needful Things, Bag of Bones, and from a Buick 8. We're also treated to the Willy Wonka-esque bequeathment of riches from the eccentric reclusive billionaire with a glass elevator to our young protagonist. A detail like that is designed to purposely lead us to this illusion, and the story could have ended there. A small tale of the brief friendship between two generations on the uh, end of their shared time together on this planet each giving back to each other and learning from one another. But King uses the entirety of that plot as the first half in order to Stephen King it up the second half, in which he says, ah, fuck it. I'm going with undead haunted zombie iPhone. And that's not a criticism, because time after time, King somehow makes the impossible work. As I speak these words, it sounds stupid. And yet the imagery of a young boy pressing his ear against the grave to see if he can hear the ringing of Stand by your man, six feet below, is so vivid and haunting. Of course, it's King adding that little touch of Tammy Wynette that makes it pop as well as it does. And the small detail that Craig isn't getting full-on voicemails from the undead body of Mr. Harrigan, but random text messages. It's enough to build mystery, but not enough to be full-on ghoulish. It allows Craig to do what we do in moments of uncertainty, when we question the universe and look for a greater design. We draw our own conclusions to find an answer in the most unanswerable questions in the cosmos. Because this is fiction, King does give us an answer. Um, and in terms and conditions of the story, um, Harrigan is answering the phone six feet below, and he is assisting in the deaths of both the bully and the drunk driver who killed four beloved teachers. 
Um, but still, of course, it, it, it serves up the, the purpose of, or the, of the theme of, of letting go. Um, but what, but even if you strip it from that, um, King lately has really been looking at, at the cosmos and the questions, um, that, that this world and the world beyond pose to us. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, with Bill Hodges, uh, he, he, he really took a turn towards an introspective look at death, um, not in a way of horror, but of just questioning it and just wondering. And we saw that, of course, you know, with, um, we saw it in The Outsider when Holly was thinking about Bill. We saw it in Elevation, and we're seeing it here, and we'll see it again later in this particular collection. It's something that's on his mind. Um, and I don't mind him doing it, because he's doing it well. And... Um, you know, I think the more opportunity... So, in Night Shift, one of the things that, that Stephen King says at the beginning was that the writing about horror becomes very cathartic because it forces you to confront mortality and the things that truly scare you. You're not really scared of vampires. You're, you're scared what vampires deliver to you, which is ultimately death and so on and so forth. And through these stories, it's a form of catharsis that allows you to handle the emotions that you don't want to think about. So King, through stories like this and through Elevation, he's easing us by easing himself, I imagine. He thinks about it. He's he's older, you know, in, in the, the conclusion to um, the Institute um, and in the conclusion to uh, this collection you know he references a friend who who recently has passed away and the older we get the more times we have to say goodbye and we think more about this concept that will be rushing at us at some point and we're forced to confront it and we're forced to have our minds turn towards it and no one likes to think about but uh i am very grateful for the fact that stephen king is thinking about it um and easing us into it. In the end, uh, we have another coming-of-age tale through the lens of a Stephen King story. So there's a couple of themes. Uh, we have a wistful look back on a time period not too long ago, but it feels like a lifetime ago. It would have felt like a lifetime ago even without the coronavirus and murder hornets, but now it seems like it's from a completely alternate reality. You know, Harrigan, you know, discusses objects owning you, which is definitely the case. I, I can't put my phone down. Um, one of the, the, the benefits to um, uh, technology, I would say, in being addicted is that it has made the pandemic that easier to, to handle. Right now, you're, you're listening to this podcast, which was created through technology, which I'm addicted to and you possibly are addicted to as well. Um, if you're bopping around your house, um, listening to my thoughts. Um, so it, it's, there's definitely truth. There's definitely truth to what Harrigan is talking about. And 2007 was not that, that long ago, but like I said, so much has changed. I remember 2005, 2006, when I swore I would never buy a, a smartphone. I, I was so adamant that was never going to happen. I was up on my high horse and... Man, that seems like a, a different person uttered those words. 
just a couple of random things about this particular novella that I'd like to say. I I really like Harrigan's voicemail voicemail box message. I'm not answering my phone now. I will call back if it seems appropriate. I I just really like that. Um, and I I I know that for the last couple minutes things have gotten maybe a little somber. Um, and this isn't gonna ease us out of that that somberness talking about death, but um. I feel like there's a couple lines in this novella um, that might be poured over in the future. Um, you know, when that day comes, uh, when Stephen King does pass away. Lines like, I do know two things, however, and they are as solid as New England rock. I don't want to be cremated when I go, and I want to be buried with empty pockets. We have a couple Easter eggs. Harlow, Maine. Um, was the location of N and Revival. Uh, Shawshank is referenced. Castle Rock is referenced. And we have some kingisms. The fan favorite, hair turning white. The bully's hair turns white. Haunted cell phones is not the first time Stephen King um, has given us this particular, uh, you know, haunted device. Uh, Most famously in Cell. But you could apply this to, to haunted technology which of course would include Christine from a Buick 8, word processor of the gods, Mile 81, and the Mangler. Uh, we have the writer. Craig grows up, you know, he wants to be a writer. It's the good old writer protagonist. It won't be the last one that we see in this collection. Motorcycle road trip. For the book tour of Insomnia, King famously toured each stop on his motorcycle. Uh, in this story, there's a motorcycle crash death accident stemming from a bed and breakfast tour on motorcycles. Uh, we also have a drunk driver um, who kills the teachers uh, in June uh, of 1999. Stephen King uh, was almost taken from this world due to a drunk driver, and this is something that King has turned to. Um, well, he had done it before, but he has definitely revisited it uh, since then. Um, and then we have an instance of throwing a supernatural object into the bottom of a lake, which we have seen in The Monkey and Duma Key, which come to mind. Okay, and then we have The Life of Chuck. Wikipedia. Um, and good thing I didn't read the Wikipedia summary before I started reading The Life of Chuck, because I really like the, the mystery of how it begins. Uh, Wikipedia states, as the world around him crumbles into oblivion a man realizes that he contains multitudes a story told in reverse starting with the end of chuck krantz's life and moving back in time to show how he'd lived that life and the muster he discovered in the uh cupola of the home he grew up in okay so a couple things immediately stand out the first is that it begins with act three thanks chuck along with the first sentence I'll get to the first sentence in a second, but in the meantime, let's spend a second on the introductory text. First, it's Act 3, not Act 1. This immediately piques my interest. Why Act 3? We're in the final act of a story that we haven't been privy to yet. So to begin at the ending generates a healthy amount of curiosity. This, combined with the title of Thanks Chuck, naturally makes you question who the title character is and how he factors into Act 3 of the story. And if that wasn't enough, the first sentence... The day Marty Anderson saw the billboard was just before the internet finally went down for good. Hmm. Now, let's look at this for a second. We're, we're all living in a quarantining world. The role of the internet, as I just discussed, is uh, necessary for the um, 
for the consistency of normalcy. Um, and it's, it's fun through a fictional means, uh, not through a real world means, but it's, it's, it's exciting in a fictional world to explore a world in which the internet no longer exists. This is now the second story in this collection in which modern technology is, is critiqued. The title card soon becomes clear that the loss of the internet is just one symptom of a larger disease that's affecting our characters, nothing short of the possible end of the world. Honestly, the depiction of the slow, incremental death of things playing out against a, mon against a mundane perspective really, really hit home. For those of you listening at some point in the future, First of all, I hope that there is a future that you're listening to. I'm recording this in the middle of months, uh, a months-long quarantine due to the coronavirus or COVID-19 to all of us constant readers out there. The year might be 2020, but everything's coming up 19. I'll be honest here. Um, a part of my job is to maintain normalcy for a community. Um, and there's been times when I've wondered, what's the point of trying to do so when things just aren't normal? So to have within the first few pages uh, a teacher meeting with parents about their children's ability to craft an argument in a paper while there are mass suicides, earthquakes destroying the coast of California, overcrowding due to refugees, it all hits very close to home. Unlike Cell or The Stand, which saw the uh, end of civilization come about because of a singular initiating event, this is different. It's a series of terrible things that are occurring. Wildfires, volcanic eruptions, sinkholes, the bee population dying out, flooding coastal areas. It goes back to the Yeats poem. This is the way the world ends now with a bang but a whimper. King is really exploring it here. And if truth were fiction, we might be applying the same poem to our current reality. It isn't just one thing that's eroding the fabric of our society. It's not just COVID. It's the protesters. It's not just the number of infections or strains on the economy. It's transparency over the failure of our government institutions to do the right thing when giving enough pressure. It's the lack of human decency shown during these times. It's climate change. It goes on and on. If it was just the end of the world, the story would be redundant. We've seen it played out already, and some might argue, as I just posited, that we might be seeing it play outside our windows. But King adds that extra thread of mystery and whimsy with the reoccurring appearance of the billboard-slash-TV ads celebrating the retirement of the mysterious Chuck. It's such a weird addition that buoys the mood and keeps it from sinking, like the sinkholes that popped up and swallowed 20 cars downtown. As King continues to explore the life of Marty, which is uneventful and identifiable, King introduces another character, a stranger to Marty, an elderly man he meets along the way to his ex-wife's house, which posits that the occurrences throughout the globe are a result of the Earth's rotation slowing down, which isn't a concept that I see too often in fiction, if ever. It places the mundanity of the characters struggling with little things like a lack of television or the crash of the internet in the context of universal forces beyond their control. It's one thing to accept that volcanoes are erupting, or earthquakes are breaking apart land masses, or bees are dying. These things, though vast, are within our comprehension because they are of our planet, and disasters that we can interact with. The rotation of the planet itself is a concept in which there is no solution, a problem much bigger than one we can combat. One weirder occurrence is the evolution of the strange Chuck Krantz appearances which escalates in a surreal and unsettling sequence in which the ghostly image of Chuck Krantz appears on everyone's window seconds after all the electricity goes out. It's one thing for the figure to appear on billboards and on TV ads, but this is adding a strange and nightmarish wrinkle to this ominous harbinger of death. 
And then things get really weird in a way that immediately gives an electric volt charge to the reading experience. The perspective switches from Marty to a previously unseen character, Doug, who sits uh, beside the deathbed of his brother-in-law, you guessed it, Chuck Krantz. And as Doug tries to comfort his nephew, the dying Chuck's son, King provides the thrust of the novella, which recontextualizes Marty, Felicia, and everyone else that we had previously met. The human brain is finite, no more than a sponge of tissue inside a cage of bone. But the mind within the brain is infinite. Its storage capacity is colossal. Its imaginative reach beyond our ability to comprehend. I think when a man or woman dies, a whole world falls to ruin. The world that person knew and believed in. Think of that, kiddo. Billions of people on Earth, and each one of those billions with a world inside. Their Earth, their minds have conceived. And now my dad's world is dying. But not ours, Doug says, and gives his nephew another squeeze. Ours will go on a little longer. And your mother's. We need to be strong for her, Brian. As strong as we can. Once King establishes this, he switches back to Marty and Felicia who experience the true end of things as the stars themselves go out as Chuck himself dies. Then King moves backwards into Act 2, Buskers. What began as an end-of-the-world story morphs into a celebration of life. As we get to know the dying Chuck before he knows he's dying, still alive, still living his day-to-day -day existence, King treats us to a sequence that is honestly quite beautiful and captures the randomness and excitement that life can offer. When Chuck, daydreaming about his days as the lead singer of a cover band, starts to dance to the rhythm of street performers drumming and is joined by a young woman recently dumped. Three strangers, who have nothing in common for this moment, come together to make magic, and King sticks with it through the rest of this day. King doesn't sully the moment with flirtation between Chuck and Janice, and there's no adultery. Just two strangers, dancing and loving the moment. Honestly, it was a beautiful segment, completely unexpected based on how the story began. And he concludes with Act 3, Contains Multitudes. Things that matter to King. And it's the little things that matter to me as a reader of Stephen King. It's why his words continue to echo within me and probably will until I am my own Chuck Krantz in my own final moments. We move back farther in the life of Chuck focusing on the aftermath of his parents and unborn sister's car crash death at the age of seven. And he writes, The Cranstonses had not only lost their son and daughter-in-law, they had lost the granddaughter who would have been born just three months later. The name had already been picked out, Alyssa. When Chuck said that sounded like... T Sorry, I gotta, write, I gotta read this right. When Chuck said that sounded to him like rain, his mother had laughed and cried at the same time. He never forgot that. Such a beautiful beautiful sentiment such a great description of the name Alyssa so for all the Alyssas out there your name sounds like rain what became apparent with the concluding chapter is King's balance of life and death and the relationship of one another despite the presence of death or perhaps because of it our characters are galvanized by life it sounds quaint but there's a potent truth to it Probably because when you remove every artifice, affectation, conflict, hang-up, interest, hobby, all we have are those two opposing forces, life and death. In Act 3, with the end of his world hurtling towards him, he literally races towards his ex-wife, Marty, and dies while declaring his love. In Act 2, 
with his tumor already starting to take hold of his brain, despite the dwindling lifespan, he has a powerful electric declaration of life. And similarly, in Act 1, despite the deaths of his parents, his grandmother, and the ghosts of dead people yet to be, he is again defined by his dancing and the joy which comes with it. And that's life. It's a sign of King's strength that the day-to-day life of this character is so captivating that you forget the concept of ghosts of the future, conjured visions of deaths in a later day um, that, that are a part of this story. It's the literalization that we all have to face, the truth of our own mortality. It functions on a literal level, sure, but its existence is really only there to serve up the theme of the importance to live the life you have, or as King writes, I will live my life until my life runs out. I am wonderful, I deserve to be wonderful, and I contain multitudes. Okay, we have some Easter eggs here. Um, first, first up is number 19. That's Felicia's apartment number. And number 19 is the, the haunted number that uh, springs out of the Dark Tower saga. Speaking of which... Um, there is a reference to a gunslinger. It's not an overt connection to our gunslinger, but King knows that words have power and knows that we will immediately think of Roland when he refers to dancing Chuck as a gunslinger. Then we have a couple Stephen Kingisms, um, first of which being the end of the world. We have seen this you know, time and time again. The stand, cell, night surf. And then dancing is life. Chuck grabbing a hold of life. And dancing with a recently broken up with Janice uh, definitely evoked Sadie and Jake from 1122-63. And unsurprisingly, um, last but not least, for Stephen Kingisms, a car crash, which we have seen time and time again. Up next, we have the titular, If It Bleeds, from Wikipedia. Holly Gibney of the Finders Keepers Detective Agency is working on the case of a missing dog when she sees footage of a school bombing on TV. But when she tunes in again to the late night report, she realizes that there's something not quite right about the correspondent who was first on the scene. Soon she will find that she's not the only one to have suspicions about the reporter. Gibney is one of King's reoccurring characters, having appeared in his Bill Hodges trilogy, Mr. Mercedes Finding Keepers, and End of Watch, and The Outsider. First up, we got to talk about the opening here on page 155. In January of 2021, a small padded envelope addressed to Detective Ralph Anderson is delivered to the Conrads, the Andersons' next-door neighbors. The Andersons' family is on an extended vacation in the Bahamas thanks to an endless teacher's strike in Anderson's home county. Ralph insisted that his son Derek bring his books, which Derek termed a grotesque bummer. The Conrads have agreed to forward their mail until the Andersons return to Flint City, but printed on this envelope in large letters is Do Not Forward, Hold for Arrival. When Ralph opens the package, he finds the flash drive titled If It Bleeds, presumably referring to the old news trope which proclaims If It Bleeds, It Leads. The drive holds two items. One is a folder containing photographs and audio spectrograms. The other is a kind of report or spoken word diary from Holly Gibney, with whom the detective shared a case that began in Oklahoma and ended in a Texas cave. It was a case that changed Ralph Anderson's perceptions of reality forever. The final words of Holly's audio report are from an entry dated December 19th, 2020. She sounds out of breath. 
I have done the best I can, Ralph, but it may not be enough. In spite of all my planning, there's a chance I won't come out of this alive. If that's the case, I need you to know how much your friendship has meant to me. If I do die and you choose to continue what I've started, please be careful. You have a wife and son. This is where the report ends. But thankfully for us, this is where our story begins. So how great is it that this is coming so fresh off of the heels of HBO's fantastic The Outsider adaptation. Um, so I did not do a full episode-by-episode episode replay or review of The Outsider on HBO. Um, it was 10 episodes, and I enjoyed 9 of the 10 episodes. Um, I did not happen to like the ending. I want to get that out of the way, um, partially because I've been talking so much of... of um, of endings lately. I loved the ending of the book. I didn't like the ending of the adaptation. Um, but with that said, I don't think that detracts from the mastery that was on display throughout the 10 hours. It was a wonderful story, wonderfully recreated. Um, it was an incredible um, interpretation of the Holly Gibney character by Cynthia Erivo and Ben Mendelsohn's portrayal of Ralph um, Anderson uh, is now who I picture in my head. Jason Bateman being in it. Like, all of it was just it was just so well done. And to get this so close to that um, is such a treat, you know? And uh, I recently uh, put a poll up on Twitter about wh who do you picture when you picture Holly? Um, do you picture uh, Justine Loop from... Mr. Mercedes, the, the Mr. Mercedes adaptation. Do you picture Cynthia Arivo from uh, The Outsider, or do you picture the uh, Holly in your own mind? Um, and you know, I, you know, I, I don't put up a lot of stuff on Facebook, Instagram, um, or or Twitter, but um, I will say that of the three social media outlets. Um, I have re this really generated a lot of conversation on each platform. People definitely had opinions, um, and it's really split between all three options, uh, which is great. Um, and it shows me that people care. People care about this character. They care about this character, um, Holly, and how she um, is presented uh, in in adaptations. They care about her as King presents her so king has discussed and he discusses at the end of this book that he just loves holly and it's really clear and there's something about it because we all do too um we love holly gibney and i can't wait to get the next holly gibney story even though i just finished this one it shows how hungry i am for this holly gibney universe so what, what's cool about this is that you now at this point, you kind of get to mix and match your favorites. Um, like I said, Ben Mendelsohn was not how Ralph was described, but it's hard for me to personally not picture him now. So during this section, um, when uh, King is, is, is writing about Ralph getting his mail, that I, I picture Ben Mendelsohn getting his mail. Um, every time Holly references Bill Hodges, I'm not picturing Bill as I had 
imagined him in the books. I'm, I'm picturing Brendan Gleeson from Mr. Mercedes, uh, the, the adaptation. And as for Holly, I, I, I picture the Holly as I first met her in Mr. Mercedes in my mind. Um, but as I was reading this, sometimes I just plugged Cynthia Erivo into the role, other times Justine Luke, you know, just for fun. So the, the story revolves around a bombing at a school, which is horrific. Um, and the bomber is introduced to us before the bomb goes off, as King tends to do, crafting a charismatic villain. And then we get the reintroduction to Holly, Finders Keepers, Pete, Jerome, the references of, of how Bill important Bill was. We get a reminder of how Holly stopped Brady's attempted suicide explosion at the concert which links the current bombing to the one Holly had managed to prevent and Pete's sympathy in the moment. I love how every character inherently understands Holly's goodness and feels the need to protect her from her own guilt. And then Jerome isn't just referenced, but he shows up, and it was good to see him again. I feel between The Outsider and The Outsider HBO adaptation, we haven't seen him much. And speaking of The Outsider... There's a nice moment in which Holly bristles at the term outside evil due to its proximity of the outsider. And it's with this philosophical conversation that King starts to get at the heart of this story, which places it firmly in the realm of fiction, that there's no difference between inside evil and outside evil, that the horrors that man visits upon his fellow man spring from an outside entity manipulating things. It's an understandable premise. After all, it's the foundational block of Christianity, and I see why it's so appealing in fiction. You can explain away the more chaotic and pessimistic qualities of our species and society, and through this explanation, create a solution to these problems, or at the very least, an excuse for them. You know, we, with King Evil, you know, we, we have seen in the past, um, you know, these outside manipulators, Flag, Gaunt, Pennywise, right? But we've also seen... The Crimson King, the people of Derry, Pimley Prentice at Aljul Ciento. Um, we, we've seen, you know, the, the, the ignorance that comes with, with evil, that it isn't grand. It is chaotic. It's low. It's a reason why King referenced the, the men in yellow coats as low men in yellow coats. Um, you know, he, he has really stopped celebrating evil. Um, he hasn't really been giving us charming depictions of evil entities. They've been pathetic. The outsider in The Outsider is just a truly pathetic creature. Um, so in this particular novella, we get both. You know, we, we, we get, you know, we get the banality of evil, um, as we'll see later on with this particular outsider who is subject to blackmail. Um, and you, you just can't see the, the Randall flags of the world, you know, being blackmailed, right? Because they are more on a pedestal of a stylistic pedestal. Um, but, you know, the big Jim Rennies of the world that would respond to blackmail, you know, and he's one of the, the most villainous Stephen King villains that have ever existed. Anyway, just something to think about. After an evening of watching the footage of the bombing, Jerome and Holly get to spend some time together. And because he sat out the events of The Outsider, it, it, it's good to see Jerome back in action. And on the road trip, King uses the opportunity to talk about race in America on pages 182. It's from Balzac. Behind every great fortune there is a crime. 
That was a theme I saw, even though the fortune ran through his fingers long before he was shot down in Cicero. It really is like the Godfather, Holly marvels, but Jerome shakes his head. It's not, because black people can never be American in the same way Italian and Irish people can. Black, black skin withstands the melting pot, I want to say, he pauses. I want to say that discrimination is the father of crime. I want to say that Alton Robinson's tragedy was that he thought that, that through crime he could achieve some sort of equality, and that turned out to be a chimera. In the end, he wasn't killed because he got crossways with Polly Rica, who was Capone's successor, but because he was black, because he was an N-word. Um, it's, it's just a, a very quick but profound examination on a couple things, on crime, on race, um, on inequality that comes from um, a highly intelligent character and one that um, I, I like the way that King protects Jerome um, in The Outsider. He made the cognitive decision, decision to not rope Jerome into the story because if he was in the story, he probably would die. And so I like the fact that he, he sat out because I don't want these thoughts that come to us from Jerome um, to be lost uh, in the future. They then head to Holly's mother's house, which is not something you often see in King's works of an adult protagonist with a relationship to a still living parent, now elderly. You know, King lost his mother uh, at an early age, and King writes what he knows, um, which is why we get so many stories about writers. So as a result, I think that we have been robbed of um, stories that include an adult protagonist with their, the, their parent. You know, the, the one that really stands out to me in the most recent years is Wendy Torrance, there really wasn't any reason to not have Wendy um, in Dr. Sleep. Uh, that would have been fascinating to have Wendy in Dr. Sleep. Um, but we just don't really get to see many instances of, of um, parents and, and their adult children. So it's good to see Holly with uh, you know her, her adult mother, even though it's a fraught relationship. It's still good to see this uh this relationship after assisting and putting her uncle in an assisted living home while dealing with the emotional fallout of her family holly's subconscious detective skills pick up on the fact that the second time she saw the reporter reporting from the scene of the explosion what she thought was his mole was missing um you know as i said in the outsider review i i'm excited that king has begun to create these series of supernatural detective stories that I, I had kind of wished that he had done with Alan Pangborn. Um, I think that if Alan Pangborn was the, the, um, the, the sheriff of Castle Rock and investigating Castle Rock mysteries, that would have been great. We didn't get that, but I like that we're getting Holly Gibney, and this is better. Um, it, it allows Castle Rock to just be what Castle Rock was, um, but this allows this sort of monster of the week story that we get. We get this this version of Scully and Mulder in uh, in Holly. Um, I just, I, I can't get enough of it. And I love that he loves Holly Gibney, which means that we'll probably get more. I hope, I hope. After a little investigation, Holly comes to believe that what she thought was a mole might be in fact the remains of a hastily pulled off fake mustache, which leads the reader to suspect our star reporter as the bomber which immediately made me think of Jake Gyllenhaal in Nightcrawler. 
Did you guys see Nightcrawler? That's a wild movie. And now I'm thinking about Jake Gyllenhaal in this story. It's a star-studded collection of characters playing out on the page. It's great. Um, after a little more digging, Holly leaves a message for Ralph in which she discusses the possibility that the current case might involve another outsider. This is cool. King rarely does sequels. Um, you know, we got Dr. Sleep. Obviously, we got... Um, you know, the, the Dark Tower series, we got Black House, but he doesn't really do sequels. Um, and this is a sequel um, of character. This isn't just Holly from Mercedes Trilogy popping up um, in someone else's story. This is Holly's story with the events of the Mercedes Trilogy and the Outsider weighing on her as she hunts down another Outsider. It's really cool. And I like that it allows this outsider to be different. You know, and the outsider just might come to represent what is Holly's name for the creatures that populate Stephen King books. Which is how the term originated, by the way. Uh, Pennywise, Flag were both referred to as outsiders, or having come from the outside. The supernatural creature that appears at the end of Bag and Bones, Bag of Bones, is called the outsider. Now, I'm not saying that all of these characters, all of these creatures are related because if you start to really analyze it, they all function differently and they all have different... I hate saying this word because it, I feel like it's the, the back of a comic book um, trading card, but it comes different power sets. Um, you know, I, I don't want anyone to start thinking that Randall Flagg fits a bill, fits this particular bill because... This is also a character that's steeped in magic, and Leland Gaunt is really a dark imp, you know, shape-shifting uh, little elf that comes from another dimension, you know, so th there are definitely differences. Um, so King gets to a point in the story in which we learn that Holly has a therapist, Dr. Morton, who she has told her entire story to in the hopes that he will tell her story to a larger audience so that she can start to shine a light on the outsiders living in this world and the people that have encountered them so as to meet them and start to stand against the darkness. And then we meet Dan and Brad who reveal the history of this outsider who is different um, because um, El Cuco was, was more... Um, though he fed on children and though you know he had the the um some telepathy uh that he was able to uh, influence jack um he really was weak it was a weak character um that had to hide in the shadows and this outsider um can really blend more with with within our society and once she's had enough information, she leaves a message to, to bait Ondowski in a bold move, listing all of his previously, uh, previous aliases throughout the years. Um, when they meet, it's electric. Um, it's, a, it, it's a charismatic villain, again, um, who is just being open to talking about what he is and who he is. And he's not, you know, he, he, he shucks at first, but, you know, when he realized that she, she's got him, um, he's not trying to hide it. And I, I thought it, I was I was completely fascinated with that whole scene. Um, you know, he he's just the classic king villain, uh, bringing charm. Uh, Holly had inner fear but outward strength. Her openness to him, but knowing she's holding something back. Uh, from a character standpoint, it was fascinating. From a plot standpoint, you know, I wanted to know what she was hiding. 
you know. Um, and it's around here that King begins to wrap and ratchet up the suspense and the paranoia. Forces seem to work against Holly, a fender bender, traffic jams, all threatening to miss her opportunity to take out the outsider on um, her own terms, which would leave her vulnerable. And King adds even more tension by having Barbara make her way to Finder's Keepers, um, just as Holly is preparing herself to, to shoot Ondowski. It's good news, bad news. Good news, Holly has prepared herself. Bad news, Barbara feels a hand on her shoulder right outside. Good news, it's just Jerome. Bad news, Ondowski knocks Jerome out with a brick and advances towards Holly. And it just comes to a thrilling conclusion. Uh, you know, we, we have, we're trying to focus on the elevator. Jerome comes out of nowhere. They work together to do what one cannot, which is all about Cotet. They defeat the outsider. It's just, it's thrilling. It's, it's moments like this. I feel bad because as I was reading, I, uh, I wasn't taking too many notes because I was just lost in the moment of the book. And I didn't want to deny myself of that. And, um, it's easier for me to, to be able to, uh, put, more of a critical and thoughtful analysis to books that I've read two, three times before. But for the first time, I really made an effort to put my phone down and step away from my computer as I read because I was just so into the moment. And that that is my analysis um, because King knocked it out of the ballpark. Um, and aside from the monster, uh, you know, the monster adventure of this particular case and all the references to, to previous King stories and the this new um, mini King universe that he's creating here. There's just a lot to, to chew on that this is just uh, a lot about America today. You know, news stories about death. There is the, you know, conversation around thoughts and prayers, racism, mass casualties. And ultimately what was the most interesting to me is... Um, just the news itself as a vampire monster. Uh, you know, that's definitely a loaded concept that's very truthful. All right, we got some Stephen Kingisms. We had uh, sneakers being blown off, which is something that we've seen time and time again. A force of good combating the evil. I, I'm listing it in Stephen Kingisms and not Easter eggs because he didn't refer to it as the white. Um, had he done so, that would have been an Easter egg. Um, psychic vampires we've seen before uh, recently in the true knot um, a villain using a brick to the head to inflict damage most famously with jack mort and uh, king uh, made sure that ondowski tittered tittering villains is a long-standing stephen kingism and then we got some easter eggs 219 is when the bomb goes off 19 is also the street number of one of the characters Obviously, we have familiar characters and events. Pete, Holly, Jerome, Bill, Ralph, Barbara, Brady, the Outsider, and the Mercedes Trilogy either show up or are referenced. 112263, one of Ondowski's reporter personas, is live at the scene of the assassination. Of course, King wrote a whole book about that particular date. In a reference, the second world, which is described as including telepathy, ghosts, strange disappearances, lights in the sky, um... King also makes references to flying saucers to killer clowns. All of that describes one Stephen King story or another. Carrie, The Shining, Tommyknockers, Langoliers, Dreamcatcher, It. Inside View. Um, Holly threatens to take the story to Inside View and specifically mentions the Night Flyer 
And at one point, Andowski says the following line, Give me what I want and I'll go away. Made famous by Andre Linoge, um, which was one of his many catchphrases in Storm of the Century. And last but not least, guys, we have Rat. And the Wikipedia summary is this. A writer with writer's block seeks a devilish bargain to help him finish a novel. Okay, Rat. Um, I, I'm not going to say much about Rat, um, other than I liked it. Um, you know, we, we, we got a, a novella about obsession and madness and writing, which he has given us before, but he does it very well here. Um, one thing that, that kind of stuck out to me was the, the focus of the germs and the sickness um, of, of shaking the old man's hand at the gas station and how that gets him sick. And the quarantine then follows that was just, uh, I, you know, he wrote this before the quarantine, um, but then again, he also wrote the stand before the quarantine, um, but he definitely has an eye for for contagion and and the passing of germs and getting sick. But all in all, this was, uh, you know, Drew's obsession with trying to crack the, this particular story and the sensation of losing the words to a story um, for anyone that has ever written that has been just um, possessed by an idea that has forced you to sit down um, the feeling when that story starts to leak out of your mind and will not recreate itself on the page is so frustrating. And for King to write an entire story around this madness that comes up from it, it was um, it was different enough from the other writer protagonists that he has given us before, even though this does share similarities with other stories about writer protagonists, like I'll say in the, the Stephen Kingisms section, it's very similar to um, Secret Window, Secret Garden, which also appeared um, in a novella, novella collection, that one being Four Past Midnight. Um, but, you know, the, when the rat shows up and he's just so matter of fact, it was just the next level of, of kind of craziness and fun. Um, you know, everything about it from, from Drew's persona, his relationship to his wife, from the descriptions of the, the cabin and the oncoming storm, every aspect of the writing process that was uh, gripping him, that was working for him, that was getting in the way from him. Um, the, the little things added up to a very clear picture um, that I don't have much to say about other than I thought it was well done and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, all right, so we got some Easter eggs. TR90. Uh, TR90 was referenced in Cell um, and it also uh, appeared in um, Bag of Bones. At one point, King uh, writes the following two words together, Everything's Eventual, which was the, the title of a short story collection and a short story within. And he mentions Derry. Then we have some Stephen Kingisms. Um, obviously, writers, we've seen writers time and time again in The Shining, Secret Windows, uh, Secret Garden. Um, specifically, we have writers in isolation going mad, Secret Window, Secret Garden. We have the Faustian Bargain, um, that we have seen in Needful Things, but this one felt more along the lines of fair extension. And then we have rats. Um, we've seen rats pop up in Stephen King's works before. I mean, for a second, I actually thought that the, the wounded rat would later awaken to be a seductive dark lady um, that we first saw in Nona, 
Um, she was a rat lady. But then we saw rats in 1922 and Graveyard Shift. So it's not the first time that we've seen a rat. So guys, that's, uh, that's it. Um, you know, I, I really liked it. I liked If It Bleeds, and I'm very grateful for um, If It Bleeds. I don't know what King is working on right now. I don't know if it's another Holly Gibney story. Fingers crossed. I kind of hope that it is. Um, but what's really cool is that uh, the HBO Outsider adaptation left it open to a sequel. And I can very easily see HBO adapting and obviously needing to make changes to if it bleeds into the second season of the outsider obviously ralph would need to to play a, a much bigger role than an off-screen presence uh the way that he does um and they probably would need to remove jerome and barbara and events of the mercedes trilogy um as they they haven't included that in the hbo adaptation but uh, it's, it's definitely something to think about. I mean, if, if we got this story, an adapted version of the story, I'd be down for that. I think that'd be pretty cool. Um, and we continue to keep the, um, the creative team, hopefully, uh, together. Um, because they knocked, they knocked the outsider out of the ballpark, as far as I'm concerned. I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed If It Bleeds. Okay, guys. So um, I'm going to put a pin in it for now. Next week, I resume my examination of the endings of the works of Stephen King. This time, looking at the conclusion to The Eyes of the Dragon, which I'm sure will spark some uh, some conversation out there. Because famously, I, I just don't like Eyes of the Dragon. So I'll be revisiting it again, specifically the ending. Um... So stay tuned for that one. Okay, guys, uh, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. If it bleeds, I can kill it. Now it's all up to me. Mud all over my body. So the bastard can't see. It's a solo campaign now. Get revenge for my man. Hawkins, Mac, and Ramirez. Billy Dillon and Blair.